The belief that God became man and dwells among us in Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Orthodox Christian life and worship. Orthodox worship, therefore, involves the whole person, heart, mind, body, and soul. In our services of worship, Christians pray and sing in liturgies that are not of this world. Ancient Faith Radio now presents Singing the Triumphal Hymn with Father John Finley, exploring the Orthodox faith through music and liturgy. Father John is a composer and musician and is with the Missions and Evangelism Department of the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Here's Father John. We continue our lessons on the Divine Liturgy and move now to a new topic entitled Basic Rites. And I don't mean by that R-I-G-H-T-S, you know, as uh, soon as an American hears rights, <laughs> he thinks of the Bill of Rights or uh, the Constitution or something like that. But we're talking about R-I-T-E-S, rights. That is, gaining uh, a deeper knowledge of the basic elements of liturgical worship to get a grasp of the significance of basic actions in the liturgy, such as sensing, processions, candles, the sign of the cross, standing, sitting, bowing, and such. And also to increase our understanding of the connection between symbol and reality. This is uh, very important, symbol and reality. It's very important to hold on to the concepts discussed in the first few lessons while discussing basic rites, that is, solemn liturgical acts. If all of creation is good by nature, if physical is not opposed to spiritual, if natural is not opposed to supernatural, if the world and everything in it actually reveal and manifest God to us, then the outward movements we make and the natural things which we use in worship become very important. All sacred actions in the liturgy reveal something to us about God, about ourselves, about the faith, and in so doing, actually become a means of communion with God. This is sometimes difficult to communicate about sacred actions in liturgical worship because modern man, and I think this is particularly uh, true uh, for those of us living in the Western Hemisphere and have inherited the uh, scholastic method through our university systems, um, we tend to suffer from yet another destructive dichotomy. And that dichotomy is symbol versus reality. Father Alexander Schmemann gives us an example of this false dichotomy in his paper, Worship in a Secular Age. And this paper is found in his book, I would say his uh, most famous book, For the Life of the World, 
uh, in one of the appendices, and I would like to read uh, a portion from that paper, Worship in a Secular Age. At the end of the 12th century, a Latin theologian, Berengarius of Tours, was condemned for his teaching on the Eucharist. He maintained that because the presence of Christ in the Eucharistic elements is mystical or symbolic, it is not real. The Lateran Council, which condemned him, and here is for me the crux of the matter, simply reversed the formula. It proclaimed that since Christ present in the Eucharist is real, it is not mystical. What is truly decisive here is precisely the disconnection and the opposition of the two terms, verum and mystici, the acceptance on both sides that they are mutually exclusive. Western theology thus declared that that which is mystical or symbolical is not real, whereas that which is real is not symbolic. This was, in fact, the collapse of the fundamental Christian mysterion, the antinomical holding together of the reality of the symbol and the symbolism of reality. It was the collapse of the fundamental Christian understanding of the creation in terms of its ontological sacramentality. Now, there's a lot of big words in, in that quote. And what I'd like to point out to me, I remember the first time I read this. It's probably 25 years ago. The mind-boggling thing for me was that here, Berengarius of Tours in the 12th century this is the 1100s now the the protestant reformation did not begin until the uh, early 16th century of course we know the beginnings of the renaissance um, after the fall of 14 uh, fall of constantinople in 1453 and um, many of these uh, professors and brilliant thinkers uh, relocated into florence italy and uh, really laid the groundwork that was already fertile uh, for the rediscovery of the classics and uh, thus the Renaissance. But we tend to say that Protestants are the ones that believe that, let's say, with respect to the body and blood of of the Lord or the bread and the wine, that it's a symbol only that it's not really the body and blood of the Lord. Here's a man in the Roman church 400 years before. (laughs) 400 years. I mean, you know, our country is barely over 200 years old. 400 years before the Reformation, this man is saying it's symbolical only, therefore it's not real. And he was condemned by the Roman church. The trap, Father Alexander says, is that they merely reversed the formula. Because it's real, it's not symbol. And so they opposed, in a way, 
they made the same mistake. And, and, and the mistake being opposing symbol and reality. Why do we have to oppose those things? And we end up, and, and then when we start opposing those things, then we start opposing everything natural versus supernatural, physical versus spiritual, all of this kind of stuff. So, time out. Let's see if we can uh, unravel this as we begin to discuss the basic rites in our liturgical worship and what they mean and what they express and how they uh, help us to enter into communion with God. When we come to a discussion of the use of incense in worship, and of course, uh, incense at first, uh, you know, in the early, very early Christian church was opposed by the Christians because incense was uh, associated with the worship of the emperor, uh, the worship of the Roman emperor. So it's like, oh, you're going to, you know, do incense, you, you know, that, wow, that's, you know, people get their heads chopped off for that. Uh, so uh, let's not do that. But later, as uh, the church had uh, in its inner consciousness uh, a chance to assess it, realized that uh, incense is always been and always will be a part of, of the worship of God. I sometimes joke with people, if you don't like incense in the church, um, you know, you better get used to it because uh, it's going to be in heaven. And they say, what? And I said, read the book of Revelation. There's incense all over the place around the throne of God in eternity. So uh, this gives us pause. <laughs> anyway, when we come to a discussion of the use of incense in worship, we often receive an explanation like this. We offer incense in worship because it symbolizes our prayers going straight up to God, as it says in Psalm 141.2 and in Revelation 8.3 and 4. What is generally understood by such a statement is that incense in and of itself really has nothing to do with the reality of worship or our prayers since there's nothing spiritual or sacred about smoke, but rather it is used as a visual aid to remind us that our prayers really are heard by God. Such an explanation and interpretation of the use of incense in worship reveals an active philosophical dichotomy between symbol and reality. And if this is true, how can this dichotomy be broken and a proper view established which holds symbol and reality together? Well, I'd like to suggest as a first step to change one's terminology and avoid temporarily the use of the words symbolizes and represents until they can be used without opposing them to reality. So can we just temporarily suspend these two words symbolizes and represents. We can come back to them later. Here's an example. 
incense offered in worship reveals and manifests that our prayers go straight up to God, as it says in Psalm 141, 2 and Revelation 8, 3 and 4. The first statement implies that the only value in using incense is its symbolic value and also implies a disconnection between the incense offered and the reality of the prayers. The latter statement, though, implies neither of these things. Let me read it again. Incense offered in worship reveals and manifests that our prayers go straight up to God. Father Alexander calls the burning of incense a natural symbol of religion. First, incense is transformed into fragrance when burned. Does smell have anything to do with worshiping God? I believe it does, since the Son of God assumed a whole man, body and soul, in his incarnation. Thomas Howard, in his book, The Liturgy Explained, makes this comment. Those who are made uneasy by the use of incense may be asked why our noses, alone of all our five senses, are to be excluded from the act of worship. Our ears hear the music and the words, our eyes see the ceremony, our tongues utter prayers and sing, our hands move in gesture, but our noses often seem ruled out as though redemption does not touch something so lowly. <laughs> Love that quote. Surely our noses are an important part of our human makeup and do participate in worship as well as in the rest of life. Among other things, God created our noses for remembrance and association. Remembrance and association. Imagine for a minute a young boy playing in his yard late in the afternoon. All of a sudden, his nose catches a whiff of something cooking in the kitchen. The next thing we see is the boy at the kitchen door nose against the screen calling, Mom, when are we going to eat? Our noses call us to table, to food, to family, to communion with each other and with God. Is it possible that the use of incense in worship can accomplish the same thing? A young man or woman of God enters the church and the residue of incense previously burned immediately hits the nose. This is a special place, he says to himself. As the incense is offered in the liturgy, he remembers that smell, the smell of true fellowship with God, with family, and with friends, the smell of the mystical supper and the banquet table set for us by Christ himself. 
He's drawn by his sense of smell towards the heavenly sanctuary of God and the communion of the body and the blood of the Lord. The power of incense to be transformed into fragrance reveals and manifests to us the transforming power of God. The natural symbol of burning incense actually becomes the very means of our participation in the spiritual reality of heavenly worship. Secondly, the smoke of the incense goes upward. Does this upward movement of the smoke, which of course is a natural phenomenon, does this upward movement reveal or manifest anything to us? I believe that it reveals the very essence of worship itself, that is, a movement upward towards God and a lifting up of man and all nature in adoration and praise. So the use of incense is more than just a reminder or an illustration of our prayers. Incense actually calls us to prayer, transforms our natural senses into spiritual senses, reveals to us the destiny of our prayers, and manifests the true movement of our worship upward towards God. To enter into a similar discussion at this time on the use of processions, entrances, the lighting of candles, the sign of the cross, various postures in Christian in, in worship would take too long. But the same care needs to be taken, however, in the use of the words reminds or symbolizes. Probably the best word to describe that connection between symbol and reality is the word epiphany. Since the symbol expresses, communicates, reveals, manifests, and participates in the reality of whatever is symbolized, although not necessarily the whole of it. These dichotomies, which cloud our thinking, must be dismantled if we are to understand the orthodox mind, patristic terminology, and the spirit of such outstanding modern-day theologians as Father Alexander Schmemann. And that was Father John Finley with Singing the Triumphal Hymn, Exploring the Orthodox Faith Through Music and Liturgy. If you would like to write Father John, his email is singing at ancientfaith.com. That's singing at ancientfaith.com. This is a listener-supported presentation of Ancient Faith Radio. Mm-hmm.